Let's review some films. Let's review some films. Let's review some films. See what we gotta say. We're back. That is right. We are the OG uh, Franchise Strikes Back crew. It's been a few uh, episodes off, but... We are uh, a full squad again, so it's, uh, of course, uh, me, your host, Steve, uh, joined by Tim and Linton. Um, Hi. Oh, hey. Hello. What's going on? Uh, you might remember us from some uh, past episodes. Go back and listen to them. I'm not going to tell you what they were. Uh, you'll have to find out for yourself. Um, but we are talking today because it is October, and that means spookiness is afoot. Spooky we are talking... Man. It's the spookiest season of all, and so to uh, appropriately uh, celebrate, we are, of course, doing another Halloween franchise. We are doing one of the more supernatural sort. Uh, we are talking about Poltergeist today, uh, and this is an interesting um, this is an interesting franchise. Uh, I just <laughs> want I've never seen all. I've never seen anything beyond the first. So when I found out there were yeah. four, I was like, uh, "Okay," and. I actually, um, I really like it. I, I think that as a whole, this franchise, including even the reboot, is uh, pretty fun. I don't think all the movies are, I don't think any of the movies are like god-awful bad. Like, I know the third Poltergeist gets a really bad rap, and it was like one of the more like legendary, you know, awful sequels. And like, it's not great. But it it's, does do, it does some fun stuff. And yeah. I would argue that it's not bad. It's, you know? well, I think, I think we're getting a little ahead of the cart, but like, well, let's, well, let's, let's each do our kind of overview. So that's Steve's overview, Tim, your overview, two minute rundown. Um, my, well, I think it's a very weird series, uh, especially the first three. Cause you know, the, the fourth one, like Steve kind of implied, it's a remake. So it's kind of different. It's not following the same characters. It's just kind of a remake of the first movie. Those original first three, it's the thing that struck out to me was just, how lost the series ended up getting in its own mythology. Cause the first movie is essentially a haunted house story. You have a family, you have, they're in a home and they're being uh, menaced in very, to varying degrees by these spirits, these supernatural entities, um, specifically the youngest daughter, Carol Ann. And so it's kind of like, okay, cool. They're dealing with these, these supernatural forces. And then as you get to the sequels, it, it's following Caroline around. They end up creating a whole backstory for the poltergeists, for the spirits and everything, giving them motivations and giving like a backstory to where they all came from. And by the time you get to the third movie, it's just kind of, you, you, you still kind of know what these beings want overall but there's no clear there's no clear definition of what they really are and what their powers are so it just gets really weird it gets really unclear what they can and can't do and why they're doing it exactly so i think poltergeist 3 is objectively a bad movie but also a highly entertaining one like I think I enjoyed watching Poltergeist 3 more than I enjoyed watching Poltergeist 2, even though I would say Poltergeist 2 is the better actual movie. Um, and we can talk about the reasons I think that. Uh, that's not talk. a bad That's not a bad take. I, yeah. I can see that. Um, and, and the remake is, I mean, it's a remake. It 
it follows a lot of the beats of the first movie. So I think it's really easy for a lot of people to dismiss it because it's just a rehash. But I would argue that, you know, it updates a lot of the iconic moments from the first. And I would argue that at least some of them, it actually does better. Uh, even though it's the first one, I think is still has clear stakes and motivations for the characters and stuff like that. Also, uh, I'm already halfway through my drink. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> Please tell tell us what the drink is. <laughs> so I and this I made it fairly strong. I basically made a mud. He always so does. It's um, <laughs> yeah. That you, that's just everybody knows that. <laughs> so it's the corpses are coming from inside the pool. And it's it's mostly a mudslide, so it's two parts vodka, two parts Kahlua, two parts Bailey's is what I made it. And then what I wanted to do, because I thought it would be fun, is I crumbled up a bunch of Oreos, um, specifically the dark chocolate, dark chocolate variety, because that's the muddiest looking one. So I sprinkled the the cookie crumbs in, and then I got those little like skeleton Wait, are bones. There, for... Are there Oreos that are darker than regular Oreos? Is that possible? They're like jet yeah. black. <laughs> Well, so the, the cream filling is dark chocolate. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The the cream the, the the filling. This is, is the dark uh, the dark the darkness of hell uh, Oreos yeah. that they came out with. I was this thinking is, like it was like Oreos so dark Oreo. that even light cannot escape. But yeah, and then I got like little uh, little skeleton bones, like for like baking, like that you would put on cupcakes and stuff. So I was like, oh, I'm going to top the drink with that. I didn't. I forgot to take into account buoyancy, and it all just kind of sunk to the bottom. But now what's going to happen is I'm going to pop up up, and then it's going to be like, oh, fuck, there's like bones sticking out of the mud in the bottom of my drink. How'd that happen? So it's just like the movie. Yeah. And you'll eat them all up to get all their alcohol content straight from them. (laughs) I'm taking them to the light. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So that's that's Tim's problem we addressed. Um, Okay. So for... For yeah, my rundown of the Poltergeist movies, like I, uh, I came to the, I, I saw all the original three in parts. They used to be on like TNT, TBS, HBO, that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely saw probably the first one all the way through initially, more or less probably in like high school or before that. And then uh, over the years, I eventually sought out two and three, and then I only saw the remake last year actually. So the first one, I was never a huge fan compared to a lot of 80s Spielberg stuff and a lot of 80s like horror kind of stuff. I I appreciated it, but it wasn't something that I was super drawn to. But I reevaluated it last year and I was like, okay, you know, this is actually better than I remembered and it's worth owning. And so I ended up buying it and then it was at the drive-in this summer with one of the many revival showings they've been doing because of COVID. Uh. Um, so, so I saw it and I'll, I'll talk more about this when it goes, when we go on later, but the, there was some things going on under the surface that struck me that I had never thought about before. Cause as a kid, I wouldn't have picked up on them. And even when I rewatched it last year, I was just kind of thinking like, Oh, spooky ghost movie. But I don't know. There's always something about seeing something on a big screen and being kind of overwhelmed by it to some degree where you do start to pick up things, whether it's more, you get more detail in a scene, you can literally see things you couldn't see on a regular TV screen or whatever. But so I started to pick up aspects of the way the movie was functioning. And I walked away thinking like, there's actually some pretty cool stuff going on in this. There's like, you know, it's, it's, it's pushing 
it, it's doing some interesting things thematically that I would not have expected and that that movie did not really need to do. So I have a better appreciation of the first one. I think the rest of the series gets progressively worse as it goes. Uh, I think the second one is like not horrible. It's like a decent enough follow-up that mm. definitely could be better. And I read some stuff on some ways of like they weirdly altered it. So it it might have been better if they hadn't. But, uh, you know, the second one has some stuff going for it. It's something that if you threw it on the background, you're not going to like kill yourself, you know, from watching it. The third one, I do think is pretty bad, but I agree with Steve. It's not like the worst movie that's ever been made. It's not the worst sequel that's ever been made. It's mostly just kind of flat and bland. Uh, it looks really cheap. And I'll, I'll yeah. go into some other issues yeah. with the third one. But yeah, I mean, the third one I feel is is just without question the worst of the series for numerous reasons. And then the remake, I think has stuff going for it, but also could have and should have done some more things, should have differentiated itself in certain ways. But it's it's not... I, I, it's an improvement over the third. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's probably on par with the second. The second and the remake have different issues, but I probably enjoyed them about equally as well. So... I would say, well, two things. One on the remake, because I have another point about the first movie that it comes from a different perspective than uh, what you guys will have is. So for the remake, what I will argue, and I, I, I'll want to get to you later on this, Tim, because I know you said some of the stuff that they do is uh, what you might say better than maybe the original. But I actually, the thing about, I actually don't mind. I, I thought the uh, remake did some really fun stuff. It, it does some fun, like, uh, you know, jump scares and there's some fun like practical stuff that they do in a few scenes like where the daughter's being like dragged down in the basement floor by like the mud pit and it was like or the tar or whatever it was mm -hmm. that looked pretty cool um and like there's some really great camera work in the remake like when the little boy is being dragged up the stairs and it follows him as he's being dragged up by the tree yeah. great great stuff um I would just argue that the things that they do, like some of the more iconic stuff in the first movie, like, um, you know, the uh, you only move the headstones and like it's like the greatest line <laughs> Craig T. Nelson has ever said. And, and it's like one of the most iconic horror lines or um, will ever say or <laughs> will ever say. Um, <laughs> and he knows it. Um, they just like. Right, I, I, it did. It did. Sorry to jump in, but it did strike me on the rewatch of this time when he's he's always saying, "You move the bodies, but or you, you move the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. You only move the headstones." And like that's, I remember that part. But there's like thunder and lightning going and stuff. But you might not remember or pick up on it. But then after that, he starts screaming, "Why? Why?" <laughs> it was like it's oh, awesome. We, we could have pulled this back a little bit. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Like, we're getting into but he's also, territory. He's also screaming. Oh, I love it. He's also screaming why, like, almost like he doesn't understand. Like, I get it that it's all fucked up and it's bad, but he's screaming like he's he desperately wants an answer, not like, ah, you fucking bastard. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, also, he's also screaming why as if he isn't in the real estate business <laughs> and has no grasp on why, why developers would cut corners. Like, that's but your that world, world, dude. That line works to me though because like his house oh, is I'm literally not, being not, yeah in, I, yeah it's being sucked into a into the nether world yeah, 
just, so like, just the why thing really, uh, really grabby. But all right, I do. What bothers me? Ahead. What bothers me about the remake is that uh, the Kerrigan Burt character, uh, which like Jared Harris plays, like I love that he's in this movie. But oh, yeah, I'm um, a sucker. I'm a sucker for both him and Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I mean, oh dude, Sam Rockwell getting to watch him in a, like a horror movie like this is fantastic. And but it, what bothers me is he just like it's like a moment of exposition where they're just like, oh yeah, I think this house is buried on some bodies. And they're just like sitting in the kitchen and he's just explaining it. And it's just like, oh, OK, like, I, how do you even know that? Like, it's just anyway. So I would say that the things that the first movie does so well, this remake kind of drops the ball on some of it and or most of it. But it does some cool stuff on its own. However, I will say for the first movie, um, being a dad, I came at it from a different perspective. And this is what I thought was so good about the original is that this movie does such an excellent job not only establishing like the family dynamic and like that like just like sort of just like normal tight-knit kind of family um where there's like a a very like obvious love in the house where it's not necessarily expressed it's just like felt Mm -hmm. and then the um the reactions of the parents so diane and steven like the concept of just lose, like there's nothing more terrifying to a parent than losing your child. Um, and then the idea that Is like, that right, Steven, oh. deep seated yes. connection to the poltergeist <laughs> series. Now this movie, uh, yeah, really messed with my head, but cause she was keep screaming his name and it was yeah <laughs> screwing with me. So, um, but I, I think like, cause there's a lot of scenes where Craig T. Nelson looks just, utterly defeated and exhausted and i think that this movie is just deeply effective when it because because this movie isn't built primarily on the jump scares because there really aren't that many in it it's a lot more of like a what you don't see is the scariest thing and that's what i think the other movies kind of get wrong is that they just become like creature features kind of and um although i do love kane now but that to me is what makes this a classic. What, what I think transcends it above like other, maybe like ghost stories and stuff like that is that really, it's just like a movie about a family. And it, it, to me, that's where you see that Spielberg influence in it. That, that makes it work uh, above other movies that are similar. That, and that going, going along with that, that was something I noticed about the original Poltergeist is you, you touched on like the family aspect, but one thing that I, really appreciated watching it this time was the movie does a really good job of showing you um, the parents relationship. Like you get the, it, and the, the remake kind of does it, but not yeah. as well. Um, it's nothing you, you haven't seen a million times. Right. But the, the, the original poltergeist does a really good job of establishing the parents relationship to each other separate from the kids because normally when we see these family movies we know like oh you know the parents love their kids it's, it treats the family as a unit but the i think the original portrait does a really good job of not just showing us that which you touched on which is really good but also showing us kind of giving us an idea of what the parents are like separate from their kids like what they what their relationship was like before they had children how they interact with each other, you know, when the kids aren't around, when they have time to themselves at night, when everyone's asleep. They're smoking and weed. That, yeah, get yeah, they're high. Smoking weed, they're like smoking weed. Dad is reading a book on Ronald Reagan, which is a nice <laughs> yeah. contrast. 
Yep. <laughs> but so like it, it gives us the, the original Poltergeist gives us a very and and it and in a relatively short amount of screen time, it doesn't belabor the point when it's showing us this stuff, but in a relatively short amount of time, it gives us a very full picture of who this family is and how they relate to one another. And so when you do get to Carol Ann getting sucked into the other dimension and like all the, the, everything kind of kicks into high gear, the stakes feel that much more personal to you as the audience, because you see, you've seen all the inner workings of this family in a really surprisingly detailed manner. Yeah, I agree that the family dynamics are one of the strengths of the original film. And that carries over to some degree into the second one. I think there's some problems that go into the second one that, you know, start to hurt it. But yeah, the, the family dynamics and the, the you know, the, the effects work, I think, is what really drives the original Poltergeist. Because you care about these people and then that's paired with some just phenomenal 80s effects like when the beast is what they refer to him as is kind of like the main entity shows up as this gigantic skull with like all kinds of you know peeled off flesh and stuff and he scream or he makes he roars in front of craig t nelson in the uh in the closet we only see it briefly yeah. i mean there's other parts with great effects but that one in particular like it does what the best 80s effects does, which is just it makes you think that that is real because it's not mm -hmm. CGI. It doesn't look like a cartoon. It's it's literally some kind of sculpt that they made that, you know, they they've obviously like are superimposing it in and, and making it like a larger size or whatever they're doing. Or or I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Maybe they actually made a head that big. I don't know, but however it works. Maybe they actually killed a man. Yeah, it's possible. Um, you know, they did on Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, but, <laughs> so yeah, I, like, so the, the effects work is, is so on point, but it's effects work that you, you don't, you aren't used to seeing it for a family, a family spooky movie. Cause usually stuff like, like, I love the, like both the Adams family movies and those aren't doing, they aren't, and, and those are like family affairs, but they aren't pushing effects and then you have stuff like Reanimator and Evil Dead and all those kind of uh, the, thing, the thing, which do fantastic, and The Fly that do a fantastic effects work. And the Blob, uh, yeah, and the Blob they do fantastic effects work, but they're obviously very hard, slanting horror where you're not going to sit down with your kids. But Poltergeist is an interesting kind of movie because there are some things that are like legit scary, definitely for kids. Some adults would definitely be like creeped out and weirded out by stuff. But it's still, it's a PG movie, um, but that's because PG-13 didn't exist. If it existed, it almost certainly would have been a PG-13. Mm -hmm. But it, so it toes the line, but like, you don't usually see that level of effects work in kind of a horror-y thing that is still something the family can watch. So I think it has a unique thing going for it there. And I mean, that's partly, that's the Spielberg touch of it all. Yeah, yeah and let's... Yeah, I was going to say, let's, because I know Lytton really wanted to talk about this, and I know I've read about it on the internet before, but um, the idea, like, uh, Hooper is credited as the director, but... Toby Hooper, yeah. Toby Hooper is credited as the director. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the most his most famous film. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, 
nothing has, as far as I know, right, nothing has officially been said, but the general consensus is that Spielberg actually ended up coming in to direct most of it, right? Not, not It's a little more complicated than that. So I'll try to do a very brief uh, rundown of it. I mean, I, I knew of this, but I was looking up stuff to get my facts straight. Because so, he, he, officially he's just listed as a executive producer, correct? Yeah, there's a little more. And he wrote that. it. Yeah. So, so oh, did Sp- he write? I didn't know he yeah. wrote it. So Spielberg okay. produced it. He developed the story for it, and he uh, had he had like a co-writing credit on the screenplay, which is very rare. He usually doesn't have any kind of writing credit on his films. There's only a few. I think Close Encounters. He was involved in that, and maybe one or two others. I mean, he obviously always has some kind of creative input and suggests ideas but he doesn't actually work on scripts. I think he knows that that's not like his, you know, his realm. Forte. So, uh, but with that, in, with that in mind, he then has greater influence on this movie than most movies that he only produced, like say the Back to the Future series or Gremlins, uh, because he had that writing credit going on. And uh, I will say before I delve into some of the other stuff, the like director's guild looked into this at the time because there were some questions and they ended up like ruling that like Toby Hooper deserved credit. But that's for me, that's really hard to say of, you know, a lot of stuff is, you know, people don't want to piss off other people in the industry. They don't want to piss off universal or MGM or whoever released this. So I don't, you know, like did the, could the GGA have been like, Oh yeah, Toby directed it. Sure, like you know, I we don't know, but like going off of like the CDC today. Well, just going off of some of the statements by people who were involved, though, like you don't know what the DGA was given or what they were aware of. But when you read some of the statements, it sounds fairly questionable. But but, so in a in a nutshell, uh, Poltergeist kind of came out of Spielberg wanted to do a kind of dark sequel to. Close Encounters, and it was originally going to be called Night Skies, and he pitched, so it would have been uh, Aliens Terrorizing a Family, and it basically is what the movie Signs became. It was that. It was like a family like in a farmhouse, and there were alien creatures. And from my understanding, the alien creatures, because I've seen this in a book before, I think the alien creatures were vaguely E.T.-ish, and then he took that and ran with it and made E.T. And so he made like, OK, I'll do nice aliens. But they still had kind of a similar look to E.T. And then he pitched Night Skies initially Toby Hooper. And Hooper wasn't crazy about doing an alien movie. But he thought, well, what if we just made it like ghosts? And so from what I was reading, that's kind of the genesis of this. It was like one idea that kind of split into two different things. And they were both being filmed at the same time um, in the same community by the way, which I always feel Poltergeist and E.T. are like, uh, like my head canon is they, they coexist in the same world. Yeah, they're happening at the same time. Yes, but um, anyway, so that's... that's Elliot's kind of, best friends with Carol Ann, they're pen pals. <laughs> it would have been cool if they did something like that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of the genesis of it. So Spielberg was involved early on, but um, there's some more stuff going on behind the scenes. I'll be very brief as much as I can. But basically, he had a deal in his contract for E.T. that he could not direct anything else while that was like in pre-production or something. And mm-hmm. so that's always been the big question of it's not just could Spielberg have directed this thing and they wouldn't say for one reason or another. It's like he literally might have been sued if he ever admitted to such a thing. And people in the industry might have known that. 
And so you might have some people who are willing to lie for Steven Spielberg or, but like, if you read some of the statements, like Frank Marshall said, um, the creative force of the movie was Steven. Toby was a director and was on set every day, but Steven did the design for every storyboard and he was on the set every day, except for those three days when he was in Hawaii with Lucas Spielberg made the comment that, like, Toby isn't a take-charge sort of guy. If a question was asked and the answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would not agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. <laughs> that's actually what – he said that in some magazine, and that's what kicked off kind of internally an investigation by the DGA, and they started to think, like, that he was trying to take credit. He walked it back and was saying – like he wasn't trying to take credit. He was just saying we had a, a, a unique working relationship. Zel but Zelda Rubenstein said, Toby set up the shots and Steven made the adjustments. She said she alleged that Hooper allowed some unacceptable chemical agents into his work and that uh, she went into audition for Hooper and Spielberg. And at that moment, Toby was only partially there. So she alleged that he was like on drugs. Mm. Uh, several of the cast and crew had different versions of what how much Spielberg or Hooper uh, was involved. And then the last bit is someone who's in the first assistant camera director said Hooper was so nice and just happy to be there. He creatively had <laughs> he creatively had input. Steven developed the movie and it was his to direct, except there is anticipation of a director strike. So he was the quote producer. But really, he directed it in case there was going to be a strike, and Toby was cool with that. It wasn't anything against Toby. Every once in a while, he would actually leave the set and let Toby do a few things just because. But really, <laughs> but really, Stephen directed it. And I will I, say, just the idea that like someone being like, "Oh yeah, Toby was on drugs." Like, oh yeah, so scandalous that someone in Hollywood was doing drugs. That. That's so beyond. Yeah, that. but if you're trying to control production, I don't know that he was. I saw someone saying that they thought her statement of that was false and they didn't know why she was attacking Hooper. But I mean, you know, if you're if you're trying, I mean, I was on a TCOM project 419 and a guy was clearly on drugs and it didn't help. So I can't imagine a multi-million dollar project. It's going to help. But, well, wasn't Scorsese a cokehead while he was filming like his earlier films? I, I don't know. We will have to dig into that on another podcast. But uh, the only other thing I'll ask him when he's on. Only other thing I'll add is that it's uh, I, I, I did see someone make the claim that it wasn't that Spielberg was trying to overstep his bounds or was demanding. It was just that Spielberg's very enthusiastic, was very enthusiastic about the idea and that Hooper probably wasn't super take charge. And so maybe Spielberg just kind of got in there or maybe he saw, well, wait, these decisions need to be made. I'm not sure, but I will say, and I'll, I'll, I've been on a rant here, but I'll open the floor to you. If you watch the film, I feel it is a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> like it looks like a Spielberg movie in the shot composition. Yeah. It looks like a Spielberg movie in the way that the monsters are depicted. It feels like a Spielberg movie in the way the family dynamics are presented in the same way that he does it with like ET. And when he does families in like the Jurassic park series and like any time where like the family unit is a key component of his movies, it feels identical to that kind of stuff. And it, you just walk away feeling that it's a Spielberg movie and I've watched a number of Toby Hooper movies with Texas Chainsaw definitely being his best. He's done a, did a lot of horror. I've watched not a whole lot, but a handful of them. And nothing in those says 
this looks like Toby Hooper to me. So I, I don't want to discredit the dude. I'm sure he had influence. I'm sure he helped make decisions. But I would say at the very least, it's a co-directing effort because it, it's the way I think of like Nightmare Before Christmas. It's not really Tim Burton's movie. It's Henry Selick as the director. But Tim Burton produced it and wrote the original story and worked on, you know, was... And it has his look. Yeah, and it's like, it just feels like a a Burton movie, even if, yes, there was a guy doing the amazing puppetry and stuff. So I think at the very least, you have to say that even if they won't give it credit, Spielberg has to at least be a co-director on this. I like to imagine that like the entire production was just Hooper going, okay, well, what if, what if a chainsaw wielding maniac came out of the closet now and Spielberg was like, no, no, we're not doing that here. (laughs) (laughs) This is a different type of movie. I would say, I mean, you know, you telling us this now, I don't want to cloud necessarily what I was, you know, what my opinion of it is, but like, I actually, as I was watching, I was like, well, knowing that he wrote this, that he produced it, I know Spielberg can be really involved in his productions. You know, even if he's not necessarily the director, he can, he's on set and, you know, he's always kind of around uh, for some of this stuff. So I felt the most obvious piece of his influence was uh, actually Diane, the mother. She is such a uh, well-rounded, excellent mother character that it just felt so Spielberg to me that it was like, this is like a mother on screen I've never seen before where like, what's so cool is that when the poltergeist starts happening, I think what's great about the series as a whole. And really in the first one is that there's never a moment where people don't believe what's happening. Yeah. I thought about that too. Like the mother, she's like, she, she kind of has fun with it and she's like things, the chairs start moving and everything. And she's like, kind of like enjoying the thrill of it. And she puts Caroline on the floor. Like she makes like a game out of her being slid yeah. across the kitchen floor. Yeah. Which there's just so much. We all would. Yeah. Oh, no, exactly, it's, it's, exactly. that's the thing. Like it's an incredibly realistic portrayal of like, if you had a normal family thrown in that situation, like I believe this is how a lot of them would react. Yeah. There's just so much, I think depth to her character, especially that it just feels like, yeah, it, it, even if it wasn't, yeah, a Spielberg directed movie, it's like his mark is all over it. And I'm positive that he probably had plenty to do with like, I'm sure he was speaking to the actors being like, oh, you know, this is kind of how I think this should go. Or here's, here's how I would do this shot. And from what you're saying, it appears to be. Yeah, I, uh, the only other one I so, sorry, I, I just remembered this. The, so there's a scene in the movie where there's a stake that's like moving across the table that's like possessed. Yeah, that dude. The guy who just decided to eat a steak at three in the morning. <laughs> so we've like, all been like there. You. But uh, <laughs> yes. yeah, that was one I didn't include on there. But yeah, the effects guy created something, and then Spielberg ended up didn't think he didn't think it worked like it should, and so he made some suggestions and changes. And the guy said it wasn't like a huge deal, but you know, it, it cost me a day or something. And he said so. After that, I made sure to clear everything with Spielberg. And so that right there also kind of shows he knew at the end of the day, Spielberg was sort of calling the shots more so than a lot of producers. I mean, obviously there's always some push and pull, but that sounds like Toby Hooper wasn't the guy who was, because I think Hooper had cleared the thing. 
Well, also, t- to be fair, too, like, compare Spielberg to most directors. If Spielberg tells you to do something, you're going to do it, especially if you're in the industry. Like, but this was only 82, though. I mean, he, he was a, you know, he had made, obviously, some bigger films, Indiana Jones and Jaws and Close Encounters, but he wasn't Steven okay. Spielberg who made, like, movies for the last 40 years, and we all have to respect him, like, to that degree. Okay. So... Let so moving on from that, uh, I would say we're probably in agreement of what the best uh, the best movie here is. It's the right. I yeah. mean, it's the first one. I think okay. I think yeah, because like I said, I think it has the clearest stakes. Like you, like you know the family dynamics. They're presented very clear, and the fact that and this was something that I think the remake dropped the ball on in terms of creating stakes for the families. Craig T. Nelson's character, like he, he has a direct stake in this suburban neighborhood. Like he's working for the real estate company that's making these homes. So like the whole, we were talking about the, you move the headstones, but not the bodies. Like there is a direct connection to him. So the, the fact that all of this is happening because a company he works for took shortcuts, like helps really narrow in on this family and like them feeling the pressure from all sides of what's going on. Whereas in the remake, Sam Rockwell's unemployed and it like has no bearing really on anything that's going on. So the stakes and everything I think are so much clearer and better presented in the original movie. And I think that is, because I think the second one has some, also has a lot of really good practical effects and scares, but it lacks that clarity that the original has. And that's why, that's what I think helps elevate the first movie. Well, I would say that there's a lot of clarity uh, in the second one. I actually think the second one, while it does stretch the concept pretty thin, like I think it's, it, it was a, it was a good choice to personify the beast through a very creepy old man named Kane. Like Who that I- dude is, wild <laughs> like, I, he's very creepy i kept calling him Lindsey graham as caitlin and i were watching <laughs> oh he, he very much reminded me of Lindsey graham the moment he came on screen <laughs> that is that is Lindsey graham and nothing anyone can say will ever get a nice effeminate southerner uh voice going on and just oh i'm just here just to see your daughter just just he's so- like He's walking through the Senate hall singing like God is in his holy temple. Earthly thoughts be silent now. <laughs> well, here's here's my problem. Here's my problem with the second well, one. And I'm well, gonna throw this out. I almost because well, I almost I, 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 I want to say something else that I think is key on the first and before we move on to the second one. Um, OK, fine. Well, it's this is the thing I mentioned <laughs> at the top of what I walked away with when I watched it this summer. So one thing is that. I, I didn't realize before how much the movie, the original has so much of a kind of like critical look on suburban life. And it had, there's a lot of things I've seen the family dynamics and the way the father interacts with people and the way like neighbors interact with each other. So it's just an interesting wrinkle that makes the world feel more real and makes it, it's not a satire, but there's like, there's some social critique going on. And then the kind of consumerism aspect of the dad is selling these like prefab houses. And you have that one shot where you're in the family's house and it dissolves and you kind of think, Oh, they left, they moved out. And it's like, Nope, he's just trying to sell a different one of these to a, you know, and it's the exact same kitchen. So there's that element, but the element that stood out to me uh, this summer that I had never realized before is that the movie has like some pretty significant feminist undertones because 
all the men in the movie are just terrified and screaming their heads off. Craig T. Nelson has that scene when the beast appears and he just, then there's a shot on his face and he's just like, ah! and I, I remember they used to like show that on TBS, like as like the lead up to stuff or whatever. So you have that, but you also have the little boy is terrified of everything that's happening. And I mean, rightfully so. And then you have the one guy who works on the, supernatural case who uh who peels his face off uh you know fakely peels his face off and and he keeps going and i was like oh just gotta even it out get this side like why are you doing this (laughs) so anyway uh he ends up leaving because he's horrified by everything he's the only member of the team that does that there is another guy who does stick around but so you have all the men in the movie are just like screaming their heads off and are terrified and the women in this movie are particularly strong And you have, um, you know, the mother character is scared of stuff that's going on, but she plays very much almost like a Ripley kind of like she's like, you know, don't take my babies. Um, And she even though she's terrified, she is standing up to the forces. And then you have the doctor character who comes in and she, um, you know, she starts to help. And then Zelda Rubenstein, who's fantastic as Tangia and uh, Tangina. And I, Tangina, yeah. yeah, and I mean, she really ups the movie for me. I think she she helps. She comes in in a place where we really need a boost. Well, and you're uh, you actually bring up a good point too because I thought about this watching the climax of the movie. Is they because I thought it was weird a little bit, but it does fit with this theme. Is that they remove Craig T. Nelson from the end? Yeah, like he goes off to go, which is like an insane thing to do. That the dad would be like, "Oh, I'm going to go off and I'm going to go quit or whatever." Yeah, and what they do is remove him entirely so it's up to, it's up to the Diane mom. and she at the front door she's even like save us Steven and like the body comes up and like closes the door mm-hmm. and so he's unable to do anything yeah. so like you're right it's like like basically all the men are rendered fairly and, well and there's there's just real quick a couple other things there's the uh she tries to get the neighbor guy to help her and he refuses so there's another guy who like won't do yeah. anything yeah yeah and then yeah. in the beginning um I saw this on an article so I can't give you know, myself credit for this but sure you can uh but the uh the beginning stuff you see like all the men are sitting around watching football and the mom is the one who's helping carol ann with uh with the bird and the bird that's died and so the argument i was seeing in this article was that you know it's basically it's left up to the women to take care of you know these matters of life and death and things that are important while the boys are all off like doing nonsense shit and that's kind of that's a thread that goes throughout the movie with craig t nelson being pretty ineffectual but the other one that i would throw out there is also carol ann she's really not scared throughout the whole thing like like she initially thinks it's kind of like neat and weird and then she gets taken to her friend yeah and she gets taken to the other side and she's like worried when she's talking through the light um but she's never like horrified and screaming her head off and then even at the end when they come back for her all she says is no more and like it just i the way the women are presented in the movie i think is is really interesting horror does a lot with female characters and you'll have a lot of strong female characters but you see these women at different stages of their life and my only vibe is a change that i would have made is i would have liked to have seen the teenage girl get more to do and I would have liked if, say, the doctor lady was like in her 40s instead of her 60s, because Tangina is like in her late 50s. So if you had had like literally this progression of age of women at different ages and they all had a role where it was like little girl, Carol Ann, teenager, mm-hmm. 30s mother, 
40s doctor, 50s or 60s expert. Like I would have liked that progression a little bit more, um, you know, but it, it doesn't kill anything for me. But anyway, so just the feminist thing is what really struck me on a rewatch. I'm like, oh shit, there's actually a good bit more does, going on in this. It's one thing that I thought was really interesting about the second one, but here's, and I almost broke format because I wanted to ask this at the very beginning. What, what happens to Dana? What happens to the older daughter? So she let's really disappears after the first movie. She's not in the second one at all. And it's just like the, the, the series just forgets about her. And it's really weird because there's not even like a, cause in the third movie, Carol Ann's the only person in the family that is in the movie, but they, they wave that away with, Oh, she's with family. Like her parents sent her away. Which is insane. Her. Which is insane. <laughs> in and of itself, but at least the movie is addressing the fact that, oh, these other characters are gone now. The second movie does nothing to address the fact that Dana is just, like, ghosted from the series, and I want to know what happens to her. Okay, so, all right, there's a, I would say this is probably the reason. This gets, this is a good time to bring up the Poltergeist curse. (laughs) So, um, this series has been plagued like I, when I was watching the second one, cause I knew none of this. I was with you. I was like, what the fuck? Like, why did Dana go now as a character? She's fairly useless. Like there's really nothing that Dana does. She's off screen half the time. Like she just is like, you didn't need a third child. She doesn't do anything. Make various implications that she's sleeping around. Right. Like, Which like, maybe, maybe that's a feminist thing. That, I mean, that's just, you know, Hey, that's maybe it goes into that angle. Um, especially for that time period. So maybe there's just that to it. But what I will say is the actress who played Dana, unfortunately was murdered by her boyfriend. Oh, shit. Uh, right after the, this movie. She was, so, she was strangled, strangled, strangled by her ex-boyfriend in, in like her driveway or something. Man. Yeah. And she, she ended up dying at the hospital. Like, I think they were like, did she didn't die like from the strangling? like uh, immediately, but then like the complications of that. So my guess is that they just said like, let's just write out the character. Let's not address it. I I actually saw some stuff on it. Yeah. They, they avoided it in the novelization. She is away at college, which makes total sense for her age. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think you easily in the second movie could have just made a, had a character literally make that comment of like, Oh, with Dana off the college or whatever. Yeah. They probably should have, but yeah, they, uh, and I think they said they had a planned, uh, they plan for a scene like that or something, but yeah, they, they essentially retired the character is what I was seeing. The argument was because of her death. Yeah. But yeah, so that, um, was, that was my big question on, on the second one, but that would I, be my, yeah. And that but, was like, okay. So there's three other things that happened uh, oh, with no. the series. So you've got that. The saddest one of all is Heather O'Rourke, uh, Carol Ann, and I didn't know this either. The third movie is actually the last movie she ever did because a few months before it ever even came out, she had like a incredibly rare bowel disease that killed her. She like so, she drank well water or something that made her really sick, I think is what I saw. And and yeah, or that was like, misdiagnosed. I don't know. I saw a couple things. Yeah, there was like she had like flu like symptoms and she was hospitalized during the filming. And then some I thought I it was that she had like just an incredibly rare bowel disease that they didn't that like typically you get from like birth that they know of and they can like treat it. But this one just like happened. It just flared up and she, it was just within a matter of months she was gone. And so that's obviously like incredibly sad. She was 12 yeah. years old. Super sad. The other two 
that uh, I mean are also sad, but maybe more understandable is the actor who played Kane died of stomach cancer. Like right after this movie, he didn't actually make it to the release of the movie. So he died at 60. And then Taylor, the native American uh, actor, um, he, I don't know exactly what he died of, but he also died after this movie. So four actors, like very big actors, not just like, Oh, the guy walking down the street. It's like major players of the series have had passed away. I think I saw um, that one of the like dads in the beginning, um, who are like watching football, somebody who worked with Toby, Toby Hooper, I think he was murdered, but this happened years and years later. This was like, maybe still maybe though, like the early two thousands or something. Um, but he was, I think I saw that he was murdered. Um, but yeah, the, the Kane one, I mean, I know there's been talk of the curse and everything and, and, uh, there's, there's one particular claim I'll, I'll say of why they say that the Kane one, I think is a little bit off because I mean, that guy knew he was dying. Like when he was cast, he's, he, he had stomach cancer during it, which is why he looks like a gaunt skeleton man. Like, like he, he looks like a walking corpse and it works so well for the movie, but that guy was, was actually dying. But uh, the one claim, if we're going to talk about the curse, that they think, uh, you know, if, if you believe in this or think it's possible or whatever, is the reason that these the series is cursed is because in the first movie, when they do the swimming pool scene, they used real skeletons because it was going to be cheaper than securing, like, <laughs> props. So I think they probably got, like, what? medical skeletons and then they dressed them up and stuff. Tim, we can't hear you. You're really garbled. Um, they got real skeletons and they, you know, put them in there and the actress didn't know. And then I guess in the second one, there's some part where they used actual cadavers. I don't know what part, but then the cast like freaked out because that had already happened on the first movie and you had that. And so there started to be talk during the second one of like, are you getting us all killed? Is this so the from what I saw, <laughs> Will Sampson, the the Indian character, uh, the Cuckoo's Nest guy, performed like an on-site like Native American exorcism or something to try to rid the spirits. Wow. Yeah. So you're telling me a movie that is based around a real estate company doing something that's questionable to save money was actually filmed using methods where they did something questionable to save money. And how? <laughs> that's what? incredible. I, what I, an American cool. film. Let me just say. Yeah. I was. I, 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 I think I knew about the first one, but when I was reading the trivia and saw they did it again on the second one, I was like, come on, guys. Well, that just seems so crazy to, because this doesn't seem like a movie that would be hurting for budget because of the people behind right. it. And the, and it's an MGM movie, yeah. so it's like, what would the cost have been to just bring in some fake skeletons that you would for any other movie? What was the point? Yeah. You said like this wasn't like Spielberg now, where he had decades of blockbusters where you basically have to listen to anything he says. But it's still Spielberg who made Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like he's some like no movie's going to tell him no. You can't use fake skeletons to, to film this. Even if you made. Even if I was going, even if you guys, you guys and I wanted to make a movie, like a, a horror movie at the cheapest possible level, and we made it for like $10,000, I th- I think some of that budget would be used to get the fake skeletons. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we're not going to dig up any graves. I would say it's also possible that maybe like the effects team just did it. Like maybe they had a set budget they were given and they were like, yeah. well, we can dedicate <laughs> money to this over here. We can dedicate money to the giant creepy head 
or we let's not run this one past the yeah yeah the like it's possible <laughs> save some money for the drugs we got to give yeah. toby hooper his drugs um that's right no one thing you were talking about like the 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 feminism of the first movie and the ineffectualness of the men and that was actually something i thought was super interesting about the second movie because i feel like they doubled down on that in a really interesting way because there's a whole a whole scene where Kane is trying to convince Craig T. Nelson to let him into the home. And he is specifically playing on racial fears. Like the way he talks about, um, I can't remember the native American character's name, but the way Taylor, 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 the way he talks about Taylor and like how, how Craig D. Nelson has let him into his home and he's going to like, he's going to be corrupting the family. Like there is this very specific play to like the, to the race, like racial fears of like suburban white people. And I thought it was really interesting that the movie just like went straight into it. And it wasn't, it wasn't subtle. It was very in your face. And I thought that was a very interesting, interesting sequence, especially because Kane is, you know, he is, he's presented as this very cultish, like evangelical preacher. Like they tell, they tell us he's a preacher that he was, uh, preaching this very intense, like doomsday message and everything. So it, it, especially watching it today, like it felt very, it, it was really cool to see, well, maybe not cool, but very interesting to see that they were presenting these types of characters in that way. And they had a scene where it was explicitly, you have this evil demonic presence explicitly preying on the racial fears of a suburban white man. And then later on in the movie, which I think was one of the best parts of the second movie, when Craig T. Nielsen like takes a drink of the beer or whatever, and there's that little worm in it and Kane, yeah, tequila and Kane like essentially possesses him. So you have this really, this really abrupt in your face portrayal of uh, toxic masculinity and Craig T. Nelson just like commits to it a hundred percent. And like, he starts screaming like the Kane's like prayers and everything like, and it's a really effective scene, but it just really goes into what you were talking about, about like the difference between how the women and men are presented in the series. Mm-hmm. And then it capped off with Craig T. Nelson puking up that disgusting, like larva thing, which I think was the best effects work yeah. of the second movie. And that was the part where I was like, that's terrifying. That rivals is, or is better than the effects work that we saw in the first movie. The worm, like, that the, that's why the worm awesome. monster, the worm monster is so good. <laughs> and, so and, he, good. and he gives us like creepy, like, like smile. Like he's not even yeah. looking like evil. I mean, it looks evil because of it, but like, it's, it's like a pleasant smile. But yeah. the one interesting note on that guy, cause the effects are amazing. Um, but I read that they used a stunt guy who had lost limbs in Vietnam, so he yeah. he didn't and it looks, he didn't yeah, have legs looks... and he lost an arm, so he has one arm. So this monster has come out of Craig T. Nelson is like partially formed is the idea, and he has kind of like flippery things in place of limbs, and he's like crawling with his one arm, and that's a real dude. So that's pretty yeah. cool. It, and it looks, I mean, you can tell that it was a real, because I was wondering, I assumed it was somebody, but I didn't know the specifics. But I mean, that's what I like about the second movie is that, A, it has the entire original cast, 
So you've got a clear continuation of the even, story. Even you forgot about Dana, Steve. Hey, I knew. I well, you know, <laughs> every, you know everybody that they wanted. Well, anyway, so <laughs> yeah, justice for Dana. She uh, she's off living a great life somewhere else. She's away from that crazy family. Um, but I love there. There are great uh, effects work. There's, there's a great effects work. You've got a great villain in Kane. And you've got great set pieces. So I would say that last like 15 minutes of the second movie where like they're in the garage and like the chainsaw is like coming through the trying to like cut through the car. That would have been a very Toby Hooper moment. There's your chainsaw, man. Yeah. (laughs) So that I I don't know. On the chainsaw bit. That's one thing when I originally watched this movie years ago, I was struck with like uh, the note I have for myself is. I have a hard time believing a preacher ghost from the 1800s would know what a chainsaw was, <laughs> let alone how to operate one. And then I pictured that that character, the Kane character, like, now what the devil is this thing? Like, like he just starts like this, you know, the chainsaw just starts flying and going at him. And like, I don't know, it struck me as a, a little odd. There's a deleted scene on a DVD somewhere where it's, it's Kane, like in the garage, like pulling the string, like, Whoa! I like this. I got to choke word. it. I got to choke it. Prime it. <laughs> and the blades just turn on their own. You don't need a horse or nothing. Read me that manual, sister. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, that's why the bumper was changed. So he had the time to like learn the product. One other thing that I really love about the second one, because um, like the first movie is like the iconic kind of moment is the TV, like that's how the spirits communicate with Carol Ann. I love how in the second one, it's the toy phone. Like that is such a great use of that kind of a toy. And actually like as iconic as the original Poltergeist poster is, I actually think the poster for Poltergeist 2 is incredible. Cause I don't know if you guys saw it when you were like pulling up the movie, but the, the poster for Poltergeist 2, it's, it's an all black background. And then there's just like a spotlight on Carol Ann, holding the phone oh, okay. holding the total phone I'll and it's a, it like, like that. I, I think it's a really cool image like and like so when i pulled the movie up to watch and that was the image like it instantly got me super excited for the movie and i don't think the movie quite met that expectation but i mean that's what a good poster does so so well okay so we'll get into now the worst parts of the series so the third movie well, actually I, has a pretty good poster as well sorry i i just had a couple other Report. notes for two if that's cool um I guess so. I whatever. I I, I think two works in a, a lot of regards, but I think it kind of drags compared to the first movie. I think that while there are good set pieces, it's there's a lot of space between them, and so it takes a long time. We're like an hour in, and there's only been a couple of ghosty things. And in the first movie, you it was like more breadcrumbs, and it kept kind of building. Whereas in the second one, it really takes a while. There's a couple like key things, but there's a lot of like dead points. Um, so that hurt it for me. And then the the end when they actually like go into the light and battle Kane. One issue I had with the first movie was as even though I think it's really good, I think you should have gone into the light when the mother went into the light because that in the first movie you are on the side of the family, and so it makes sense that when Carol Ann is off there that you don't see her that you are on the you know that you have the same amount of information as the mom and dad but once the mom goes into the netherworld i feel that's the opportunity that the audience should have gone in 
and they do actually do it in part two um, near the end. But uh, from what I was reading, they cut a good amount of time from the runtime of part two. And so that the fight, like in, in different places, but I think the actual final confrontation with Kane, I read like lasts about 20 seconds. And mm-hmm. as good a villain as he is, he's presented as this, he's an HR Geiger monster, actually. Geiger worked on this. So he he's given this, uh, you know, big creature thing at the end, but it's like, it's over faster than the climax of an Iron Man movie. And it's, I mean, I, I do think, you know, you've been, you've been really laying on a lot of good creature effects at, at points and then it gets to the end and I feel like it's all kind of rushed and over with too quickly. So that's, that's one area where I think the second one kind of falters where it, it could have been stronger. Need some Hellraiser 2 territory yeah. where they're just like chilling in the hell world for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, I would agree. I mean, and then of course, you know, you have the. The grandma, we who haven't talked about, Grandma Angel comes yes. and saves Carol Ann because she goes into the light. And then the grandma, which conceivably then at that point, it's like in the third movie, it's like, where's the grandma in the third movie? Like, just get Carol Ann's ass out of here. I guess. Like, what is she doing? Well, I guess I would. The, the actual answer I would give is, well, the grandma has probably gone into the light herself by now. But I think that gets into the issue that I have with the series as a whole, the further it goes along. And by the time it gets to the third movie is they've introduced all these different like things, but never really define how anything actually works. So by the time you get to the third movie, which now we're jumping into, you have this hodgepodge of mythology that you've kind of sort of built up over the previous two movies, but there's no, there's no real firm idea of how to actually utilize them because there's no real internal consistency like because you know we start with the first movie like i said the first movie is essentially like a haunted house movie and you move to the second movie and the second movie is at least more of a organic continuation so you've introduced Kane so now you've put like a specific face to these other world entities it's followed them from the house to somewhere new but it's still a lot of the same like they're they're messing with stuff in the house once you get to Craig T. Nelson like ingesting the worm and puking like the Kane monster up that is like a new power and I, that's where I think the the series starts, like, not really knowing wh- how it wants to treat these ghost creatures. And then you get to the third one, and now it's, like, open season on what they can do. So, like, the idea, like, the, it starts with, like, a focus on the reflection of mirrors and stuff like that, which I think is a cool idea. Like, reflections, I think, are a really good go-to source for horror the idea of like the reflection being something off. There's a lot of thematic, uh, thematic resonance to it. You see it pop up in a lot of different kinds of horror and ghost stories. So that's a kind of neat idea, but again, it's something very different from what we've seen in the other movies. And then it just keeps evolving. So at one point they're like coming into the real world, they're possessing like actual human bodies but then they're also just reflections because like the, the two, like the one teenage boy and girl like end up getting possessed by these entities and end up like killing other people. But then there's a shot where they like, like put their arms over each other's shoulder. They start walking down the hall and the camera pans and you find out that they're really just the reflections. 
they're not actually there anymore. And it's just kind of like, okay, so how the fuck does any of this work? Like, there's no clear idea mm-hmm. of what the powers of these poltergeists or ghosts or spirits are anymore. And there's also this really weird obsession with like cold and ice in the third movie that kind of comes out of nowhere. And it just, it, it, it increasingly feels like a hodgepodge of ideas that they just kind of threw together and were just going with the poltergeist name for branding purposes. Well, there's also like, it's, I realized on rewatching all these together, there's also kind of some big question marks of what the ghosts poltergeist like want what their yes. goals are because yeah. like i do think like steve mentioned having kane come in as the beast like you you personify the entity and that guy is really creepy and so i think that's one of the better decisions of part two and if you haven't seen these movies why are you listening to this podcast but if you haven't seen these movies um <laughs> kane uh the idea is that yeah, un- I mean, potential audience don't listen to us underneath underneath their house it's discovered that there was in part two it's discovered that there was some kind of like cult that this guy was leading in a kind of jim jones fashion and so that it's more than just there were bodies uh that the house was built on on top of graves it was that there was actually this like religious cult activity it's like all right that's kind of a cool development but the issue that i had re-watching it is so that at different points in each of the movies, because even the first movie, I think, is a little vague on this point. It's unclear of like, do they want Carol Ann to take them into the light, i.e. the afterlife or heaven or whatever, because that's kind of what it's discussed as. Or do they want to become human again? Because Tangina in the first one says like, they miss earthly delights. It's something they very, you know, very much want and can no longer have. So she has yeah, that right. line and they don't really. Yeah. Why do they want her life? Force? Right. They don't really do anything with that in the first movie. But in the second one, you have Craig T. Nelson gets taken over by the worm and he like essentially attempts to rape his own wife. It's it's Kane uh, taking him over. And that's where things are headed before the father, you know, stops it. So you have you have that. And so that seems like Cain just wants to be human again. And then in the third one, you have all kinds of ghosts taking over bodies and doing stuff. So it's it, but at the end, then they Tangina is going to take them into the light. Like I can do it because she's she's dead. And so she's able to like take Caroline's place. So it makes it it's a it's a big question mark for me of what the series is arguing. Like, are these ghosts mm-hmm. wanting to pass on and they don't have the ability to uh, or do they actually want to be human again? And it's like at any given scene, it can go either way, just at the whim of the yeah. of the writer. Well, it's like I said at the beginning, yeah. like the series ends up getting lost in its own mythology. There's no, they keep building on top of what's come before, but there's no consistency or coherent overall plan for how it all works together. They try to explain it a little bit where they say like there's a lot of spirits that have for whatever reason not gone into the light and they want they need carol ann's help getting there and so it's like oh okay yeah that makes sense but then like there's this rift because they have such a big interdimensional rift in their house it 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 brought i think tangina says that it brought in this other entity that's the demon the beast the beast So he's like his own thing, but then and then, but then the end of Poltergeist three ends with Tangia well, taking the getting, beast into the light, which implies that his motivations were well, the that, same. I think, well, I think he's going. I think he might be. She might be taking him 
more unwillingly. I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. Okay, maybe. I, I mean, we're getting into like, maybe, but like now we're getting into the fact that the third movie just like doesn't need to exist <laughs> and doesn't really do aside from like some in which Linton, one of your notes was, and I agree is like aside from like some really good in camera creature effects, like there's some really good like fun uh, jump stuff that they're doing. This movie absolutely does not need to happen because like you're saying, Tim is like they're like, I mean, you're essentially written into a corner after the last one. It's like, well, what more do we do here? And why do we even have to include that? I think is what the free lanes. Um, yeah. Poltergeist three should have not even included Carol Ann or something. Like if you really had to do it, just eliminate the family because the concept of this movie is that Diane and Steven send Carol Ann to uh, her uncle and aunt in Chicago so that she can like go to some school. And it's like, you can't, after seeing the first two movies, you can't convince me that they would ever in a million years like not keep eyes on her 24 hours a day where they're just like, yeah. have fun. And halfway through the movie, once the ghosts start showing up, cause the aunt is the mom's sister. And um, I, I, maybe I missed some stuff early on, but it seemed like the aunt was presented more or less like a normal aunt, but halfway through once ghosts start showing up, she literally tells her husband, she is the actual blood relative of Carol Ann. She tells her husband, just like, basically like, Let's cut her loose. We're done with this. And she yeah, says it a couple of more times where she just yes. wants nothing to do with this like like eleven year old girl who's who either is dealing with ghost problems or mental problems. They they don't know whatever's going on. She's dealing with problems, and her aunt Dude, her aunt last... her aunt is just ready to just like no. We just ship. Her. We like she's even saying like. I don't even think she's saying send her back. At some point she says that. I think she literally just starts saying like, we just leave this complex yes. and we yeah, just like leave. let her yeah. sit here by herself with no. Put her out on the street. Up until the last five minutes, that's what happens. Yeah. And then she's like, and the then there's that abrupt change. Like, I, yeah, get, like, oh, I, love my yeah, I just don't know I don't how to leave. show it. And I get that's like, that's supposed to be the arc of the movie. They're building to her coming to that realization, but it does not, it does not spread that realization. Oh, so bad. Well, at all. But here's, there are two things that I loved about the the third movie. The first is when I think it's Tangia, when she like gets touched by like a spirit on the other end and like her body explodes to reveal the other daughter. Yes. Like that was great effects work. It didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it was great effects work. So that the shot, the shot is not just that she explodes. She, she becomes like a desiccated corpse. And then yeah. she like, she's on the ground. The father like moves the body. Cause he thinks he's like going to get her away from the, the creature from the ghost people. And then, yeah, her body's on the ground and yeah, Laura Flynn Boyle's character literally comes out, like just claws out of this prop, like corpse body that it, it looks like skeletony, like they change her look, but it's still clearly like supposed to be the actress and everything. It's one of the better moments of any of the movies on an effects level. Yeah. Like you were talking about like the effects levels of the first one, like, you know, it like matches a lot of what you're seeing in the eighties. And like, this is like the money shot of the third movie in that regard. Um, and I also love, cause it like, I just laughed for like two minutes when it happened. The, the one, like the one teenage boy ends up getting like pulled into the other dimension and they go like a lot of the characters, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And the pool in this hope, well, first of all, I don't even know what this building was. It's like a residential apartment that also has a mall 
on the lower floors and like it, it reminded me of like a resort at Disney where it's just like, yeah, let's like throw it all together. Who cares? I think it's like but there, I think it's like a building in Gremlins too. It's just like it just yeah. has everything. <laughs> yeah, it's but there's very no, like Gremlins too, they kind of like play it up to an extent. Like it's just not addressed at all in this movie. But there like there's this pool and it's been completely iced over. It's frozen because again, Poltergeist 3 has this weird obsession with like ice and freezing and stuff. And the one teenage boy who had gotten pulled into the other dimension, he gets shot up through the frozen pool. And then he starts like walking around and he ends up, cause he's supposed to be like stiff and frozen. He ends up doing this little mini thriller dance as he's like walking away <laughs> from the pool. And I just like was, I lost my shit. I was, it was so unintentionally hilarious. And there are, there are, not to that extent, but there are a lot of moments like that in the movie where that's why, like, it's not a good movie, but I was highly entertained watching it. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that. Like, it, yeah, I watched it with my uh, wife. And when it was over, I was just like, well, that sucked. But, <laughs> I, but there were things that like there were things that I when we were watching it, we were like, oh, that's cool. Like, obviously, the desiccated corpse thing. There was like a fun shot that they do at one point where they're like filming the outside of the apartment and it goes to each of the three rooms yeah it was like a it was like a cool tracking shot and i was like that's lively and uh that's that's like a cool like i always like try to find elements of the filmmaking that i can find as like redeemable and there are like some of those things in there it's really honestly just the story Um, and the the story is awful uh, on the effects the the director did like all the effects are in camera too so there's no super imposed like they they didn't film like a a big screaming head like in the first movie and then like match it in with another shot so like everything is done essentially like a magic trick where you have to figure out how this works on a set on a stage like with a camera running so like i will give them credit that's a cool approach But it's yeah, admirable. but but with Steve, with Steve saying the story sucks, and I'll also say that the uh, the movie just looks incredibly cheap, and the dialogue gets really bad. So basically, everything yeah, that can yeah. go wrong does. <laughs> but I will give yes. them credit for like they had a cool angle on that. But I feel that the director didn't really do a good job with any other aspect. But you did you have a story thing, Steve? Before I jumped in, uh, no. Oh, other than just like it's the bad. Other only read. It's it stinks. Uh, but the other one redeemable thing is like, you know, it does have Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen. And it's like as an alien and RoboCop fan, I was like, cool. And then that was about it. <laughs> I will say one other thing. One other thing that I know I've seen them in other stuff. That's good. <laughs> one other thing I noticed about the third one is that it's the only one that has a body count. Yeah. Like, because in, in part two, the grandma dies, but it's unrelated True. to yeah. any of the ghosts yeah. or anything. In part three, they're actually killing people, which is something yeah. we hadn't seen. We, we don't see in any of the other movies. The remake doesn't kill anyone either. Well, there's only so, there's only one person actually is killed, though. Uh, well, I, I guess you could argue, yeah, Tangina is killed. Because I, I, I saw, like, a breakdown of, like, the deaths. But, yeah, they, they argued that she was sacrificing herself. But, really, she's she's killed. So, I don't know what they were talking it's still, about. It's still a body yeah, count. Yeah, she's killed. Say. And then that asshole doctor, like, who just lays it on real thick where I'm like, yeah. well, you are going to get killed because this is a horror movie. And the way you are acting, that's you are not lasting what? to the end of this. <laughs> what happened What happened with their actual daughter? Because cause when are she comes Are we back to Dana up, again? What are you talking about? No, 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 not Dana. The... the <laughs> The the aunt, is it Marcy? Marcy, Marcy? yeah. The yeah. their daughter 
that is kind of like babysitting Caroline at one point. So she's the one who Laura Flynn. She's Boyle? the one who comes. Yeah, she co- she's the one who comes up through Tangia, but then we find out that she's actually, um, you know, manifestation from the the poltergeist and everything because she, her, and the the teenage guy yeah. end up. They're and all, I don't. They're maybe all I missed it. No. Did, maybe maybe they come back at the end, and I missed it. They're all but, embracing at the end, so I think the implication is like, ah, and she's back. But yeah, I don't think they ever show her okay. like, coming I, back I, from I, the other side. I honestly could not remember what happened with them because I was wondering, like, well, did they kill the daughter too? Because that would actually be pretty dark if that was the case. But if they if they show her at the end and just kind of wave it away, that yeah, she's just there. Yeah, that, yeah she's just that there. feels more in line with the way this movie was operating. So. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like it's like discount store version of the family dynamic gotcha. from the first one. That's all you know. It it's not all good. right. Re- remake um, time. So let's go. I would say in the interest of time, let's go remake slash like uh, we can talk kind of like weave in like the current world of Poltergeist slash the future of the franchise if we can. Yeah, if there is one. So we'll just kind of. I, yeah, I honestly it. don't oh. have a ton to say on the remake, so we can. I think we can cut this short. I'll say that I love Sam Rockwell and everything he ever appears in, and so that uh, continues here. Um, he's just <laughs> yeah. a fun presence all the time, and yeah. so he's good in this. Uh, I like Jared Harris usually in basically everything, so it's good to see him. I think uh, a little bit of disagreement with Tim because he thought that they weren't establishing the family dynamic as well when he talked at the beginning. I thought that's actually one of the stronger parts of this remake. I thought the first half does really well what the original Poltergeist did in making you connect with and care about these this family and these kids. And the only reason I sought this out last year is because the director, Gil Keenan, uh, he also directed Monster House. He did that movie Bill Murray was in, City of Ember. He, I've seen both of those. He did some stuff on the Scream series. But he tapped. He was tapped to co-write Ghostbusters Afterlife, and so I wanted to seek this out because I wanted to see, like, all right, well, you know, how did he handle this? So, watching all of those other movies, other than the Scream thing, I feel he is a guy who, you know, at least grasps horror pretty well, and then he really grasps like kids and families, which bodes really well for me for the script for Ghostbusters Afterlife since they are focusing heavily on kids. So I was very glad to see that because, I, I mean, the spooky stuff, I'm sure they're going to handle well in that one, uh, you know, in, in Afterlife. But uh, but yeah, so so Gil Keenan, uh, I think, is worth noting for that. As far as the rest of the movie goes, it's uh, it's fine. I think it's a fine remake. It's better than some. I think while some of the set pieces work, a lot of it just feels kind of rote and like, I don't know, this happens now. And it's not that it's done poorly. Yeah. It's just that it's, it doesn't grab me or make me like be, Oh, Holy shit. That was so memorable. So like, I don't think it's an outright bad movie, but um, I I think it does lose some of the commentary on suburban life, consumerism, feminism, Uh, the first two suburban life and consumerism. Some of that's there. I don't think to the degree in the original, um, and then, I mean, if, if we're just kind of all summing up things, uh, I'll, I'll say, uh, for the future of the series, uh, they are, the Russo brothers are apparently planning a remake as well. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's cool. Anyway. Wait, who's planning a remake? The Russo, the Russo, Russo brothers. brothers have been tapped. Oh. Yeah, I guess like, like beginning of this year it was announced. And so I actually think they're a pretty good fit. 
because because I mean I think when these these movies operate the best when they are like ghost movies that the family can watch. And so I think you want someone with a lighter touch. So uh, yeah. so they're a good fit. And yeah, the only other thing I'll say on the remake is at one point there was a line, why would someone have a box of clowns? Which I felt was a very valid question. <laughs> yeah, right. right. And that I, was, I leave it to I, you boys. I will say the, like my one note was like, I think Poltergeist, like the original Poltergeist is the best of them, but sub in the clown with the clown from the remake. Because that clown is terrifying. Um, but I did think it was weird. Like, why would someone have a box of clowns? Like, it did feel like certain things in the remake like that, they were just doing so they could do them. Because it's like, yeah, why the hell were all these clowns just hanging out in this crawl space? And not just, like, in the crawl space, but, like, placed precariously on the top so that if you move anything, they all fall down. Like, there's no explanation for why any of that is happening. So I thought that was kind of weird. But I rolled with it because, again, those clowns just looked absolutely nightmare-inducing. So that was cool. And I also liked with the TV, like, having the hands appear on the other side one after the other like that was a really cool added effect to kind of up the ante from the original um so those were like there were little things like that that i thought made the remake worthwhile even though it's not really doing much new uh but you brought up like it loses some of the suburbia commentary there was actually one point that i thought and i wish they would have done more with it But because they're in a neighborhood that looks fairly similar to the development in the original Poltergeist. And when they go to the one dinner party, when they're talking about they moved the cemetery and everything, there's the like the one person has a comment like, oh, yeah, they moved it to a nicer neighborhood. Oh, I'm sorry. And like I thought like that was kind of like to me, I read that as, you know, what was considered the really nice up and coming neighborhoods in the 80s are now kind of like the like decaying sprawls Mm. like the 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 fortunes of those kind of neighborhoods have sunk and we've just moved on to newer bigger and better development hilldale from back to the future too yeah kind of like that (laughs) and so like i like that was like when that dinner scene happened i was like oh that's an interesting that's an interesting idea that's an interesting point but the movie just kind of drops it from there which i thought was disappointing and as far as where I would want to see the series go, and I, I didn't want to argue this during the regular episode, but I put my notes that from my understanding of a poltergeist, like when I would read stories as a kid, the poltergeists and the, like they're not really poltergeists in this movie. Like they really do lean more into the typical ghosts and stuff like that because when I would read stories, like even scary stories to tell in the dark, one of them has like a story about a poltergeist. It was always presented to me that poltergeists were created by an individual, usually an adolescent or a child's emotional trauma. So the, so, so the, the poltergeist series doesn't really do much with that. So if I were going to pitch an idea for another poltergeist movie, I would want it to focus more on that because I think that's something that makes poltergeists interesting and more unique from your run-of-the-mill kind of ghosts. So, you know, have it be really tied to, like, a young child's emotional distress or anything like that. Like, you know, maybe there's a new step-parent 
Um, or, you know, they've moved in. I mean, the fact if you're moving into a new house, that can be emotionally distressing for a lot of kids. And you can kind of really build into like the emotional health and well-being of people and tying that to it. And this goes in a different direction from what Lynn was talking about, because I do think he has a point about how, you know, Poltergeist works really well when you're keeping it more family centric. Like it's it's a scary movie that the family can kind of watch together. But I started thinking about, like, get a Mike Flanagan or, like, Ari Aster. Let this be his, like, mainstream studio breakout. Or even, like, Jennifer Kent from The Babadook, who have, like, expressed, like, who have shown that they can they can uh, imbue horror with a lot of that kind of emotional depth and, you know, devastation. <laughs> and, and I think that could make a really interesting movie that might move it a little bit too far away from what the series has traditionally been. But like, if I'm talking about what I would like to see personally, I would like to see a poltergeist movie that really digs into its connection to emotional distress. I think I, I, that's cool. I'm cool with that. I, I think my only, uh, I think that's a solid idea. My, my thinking is that I probably would just say like, even hearing the Russos being involved in a potential remake, I kind of wish the series would just sort of be done because I don't know that there's that much more that even a great director could do. That it's like, what haven't I seen here? Like what, like what, what can you do that I haven't seen across two i think good movies and like a pretty serviceable solid remake like i like the remake i think it does a lot of things pretty well it has some uh interesting uh set pieces and I've, obviously i love sam rockwell and jared harris and the i do think the family dynamic is good in this not as good as the original but like yeah it works um mm-hmm. through the talents of like rosemary dewitt and sam rockwell especially the kids are pretty eh. i think the problem that i have with this is that it it looks and feels like so many of the studio horror that comes out today. Like, yeah, that's true. I, th- I, th- I think the kids are really one dimensional and they're that same, like, Oh, one of them's obsessed with a video game. And the one teenage girl is kind of a bitch. And it's like, uh, okay. Like, I mean, I don't know. I see that all, you see so much of that. And I think that even like, it even has that same, that same, uh, like formula of like, Oh, we have to have a jump scare every five minutes or else people are going to get turned off where it's like, you know, there's the squirrel, there's the clowns, there's 28,000 poltergeist disturbances there and, or, or just random stuffs falling. And it's like, well, when they polter, when they go into the other dimension, like at first I was like, Oh, that's cool. It was like all those bodies kind of like reeling around each other. But the more I thought about it, like it just has the same kind of, color palette and feel of numerous yes. other movies yeah right it's like is this insidious i mean yeah. it could be any it of them, you know what i mean like ugly i felt once they went into that yeah. it just like it didn't look scary it just kind of looked uh this this yeah. looks bad on screen and it reminded me and like honestly i thought that entire sequence with the drone and the video drone in like the other dimension just felt like like lame like it just felt that like eventually people are going to laugh at that if not already, like, it's just like a lame sequence of the movie. Like I always feel like, I mean, a lot of these, it's just like less is more. I, I, I don't need to see the other world. Let me envision the terror of the other dimension. Like when, when Carol Ann, or I don't even know what the name of the girl, Mandy, uh, I don't even remember. Maddie. Um, Maddie. Yes. So when she gets taken and it's just a dark, nothing, 
and she looks back at her closet and it's way far away and these hands just grab her to me it's like oh that's terrifying like let me just think about that then rather than like now i'm introduced to the to the other world and i'm just like i don't know it's like just looks like a bunch of like masses of random hands kind of but like there's nothing tangible for me it's just dark anyway it's just dark I, i yeah it feels a lot like like you didn't even have to call it poltergeist. It could have been whatever. And it's like, yeah, I've seen like a hundred of these, like uh, a lot of studios make these types of movies now. So it just doesn't feel like anything too. Uh, you're capitalizing on the name basically. Well, yeah. So and, and on your point, I'm kind of whatever on yeah, it. Yeah, on, on your point, Steve, of like uh, like the future of it, I, I basically agree. Of you know, I, I'm all if you've listened to this podcast, I'm all for continuations and sequels when they are you know, done well and have something interesting behind them. But for this series, I don't know what you do with it. I think the Russos are a good pick because they have a good tone and they probably will at least deliver a fun movie. But you can't do a legacy sequel because your cast is all really old and, you know, like Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, and then you're, but they're not even the important ones. The important ones are Carol Ann and Tangina and they're both dead. So like the key people of this series, you can't bring back. And I don't think anybody's going to sign up for a 75 year old Craig T. Nelson movie. Like nobody's like coming <laughs> to the theater for that. So, so your a legacy sequel is sort of off the table for, I mean, you could bring some of those characters back if you wanted, but it's, it's not going to be what these other movies like star Wars and ghostbusters and other things where it, it's a draw for the audience and people want to see these people. And then beyond that, yeah, what Steve is saying, you're essentially just using the Poltergeist name because at the crux of it, it's they're just movies about ghosts, you know? So, like, you, you right. and there's hundreds of those. So you don't need, I mean, other than you want to slap Poltergeist on it because people have heard that name and maybe they have fond memories of the first or second one or whatever, there's not anything in terms of a mythology like you have with Ghostbusters or Star Wars or Back to the Future or whatever where, you know, you can do a ghost movie and call it anything. And you can do the same kind of scares. So there's no... Oh, here's an idea. ...to really extending it as a brand, but they will continue to try to extend it because it is a brand. That's where we're at. I would say what would be an interesting... Just as you were talking, I was thinking would be... um, An interesting way to do a movie would be you do Poltergeist uh, back like very close to the time when Kane and his religious cult died. And you basically do like a period piece where Kane is haunting like an 18th or 18th century or early 19th century family. And so then you've got like the period piece of it. And it's like, th- there's just more to play sure. with that you haven't okay. seen before. Get, uh, you know? What's his name? Roger Eggers from The Witch. Get yeah. him to direct it. Tim wants yeah. the Poltergeist series, which is like a fun family spook fest, to turn into just like this bloody, horrible, psychologically <laughs> scarring film series. And I'm all for yes. those movies, but that is not what Poltergeist is. The other but idea, I think, that would be interesting to see it from the perspective of like a family hundreds yeah. of years ago and how they yeah. would stick together. The other idea I had was, uh, and hear me out, uh, Poltergeist: The Incredibles crossover really make the most out of Craig T. I, Nelson. I prefer not to hear you out, frankly. <laughs> I've heard enough. <laughs> I have yeah, I've run out of my short lease in term my short leash in terms of my uh, weird dissenting opinions. So yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a good place to end it. 
yeah, I guess that's yeah. We'll cut, <laughs> cut things off for today. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I think um, you know this is. I would say for Halloween viewing, I would say the first and the second are first is essential, obviously, but the second has a lot of good stuff working for it, especially because the original cast is back and it does some fun things. And Kane is like an underrated horror villain. So I would say um, in your horror, you know, binging the first and second are uh, definite must be sure to go out there and vote for me. If you're living in South Carolina, I need your vote this year. (laughs) Big election. (laughs) All right. On that note, guys, we're out of here. We'll see you. Let's review some films, see what we gotta say.